0: One pastor I read this week, who lived actually in the mid-1800s, while teaching on this passage that we're covering today, he said this, quote, If you want to know how you ought to feel and act toward other people, you should often study these verses. They deserve to be written in letters of gold. They have called forth praise, even from the enemies of Christianity. End quote. And and I think that's true. And why? Well, because in these teachings, like he's been doing so far in this whole sermon on the mount, Jesus here opens to us the brilliant way of his kingdom. And thus far in Matthew chapter 5, we've seen that that way includes things like the beatitudes and shining our light and avoiding anger and not lusting and using others and being faithful to our promises. All that has been the Sermon of the Mount so far, and all that has been unique and radical. And yet, what still does, in a way, make this passage here this morning, though, so special? And in short, it's because what Jesus is going to tell us here is that his people are to be people who don't just try to be good and moral, but especially when others wrong us or take advantage of us. We're merciful and even more specifically he's going to tell us that when we have enemies we're not just to tolerate them or just say we love them but we're to genuinely love them and pray for them and want their good And I know for most of us here, we've most likely heard these teachings from Jesus before. But even as we begin here this morning, hearing that, I want us all to just slow down for a second and just think about how difficult and how counterintuitive, deep down in our very bones, what Jesus is about to say to us actually is. Right? Because we may all know that it's good and beautiful to show mercy when wronged, but let's be honest. When that actually happens, when we're wronged, or when something legitimately isn't right or fair, we know how hard it is to genuinely feel and act in mercy. And the same is true for Jesus' command here to love our enemies, because it's so easy to hear that and nod our heads and smile and rightly agree with it. But then, when it actually happens that we encounter someone who is actively against us, how often then do we genuinely feel love for them and pray for them and can say in our deepest hearts that we want their good. And so again, when we truly grasp this church, we do see how this passage is its tough, how it's counterintuitive and radical and how it's honestly just so against the grain of our sinful natures. And yet all that said, such mercy and love is what our Savior is calling us to here this morning. And so that's just in a nutshell what we're going to be looking at together. But that then brings us briefly to our outline for how we'll go through everything that Jesus says to us here. And as for our outline, simply said, as you can see, is there's two paragraphs here from Jesus. So for us, we're just going to have two sections together this morning. Two sections. First, we'll look at Jesus' teaching on retaliation and feeling and showing mercy instead of mere justice. And then second, we'll see what Jesus calls us to concerning loving our enemies. It's that simple. First, retaliation and mercy. And then second, loving our enemies. But all I said, let's just dive in then and begin our first section here together, to church. And for this, we'll be in verses 38 through 42. And again, we'll be looking at Jesus' teaching on retaliation and feeling and showing mercy instead of mere justice. Or to say it another way, Jesus here is essentially going to address how we should feel and act when we're genuinely and unfairly mistreated. And so to start on this, we'll begin with Jesus' quote from the Old Testament in verse 38. So look down in your Bibles now. Jesus continued teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. So that is a famous quote exactly from the Old Testament. Jesus does not change it at all. And, 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 and this is a quote that's not just actually found once in the Old Testament, but significantly, this quote occurs in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. <laughs> and so this is a well-attested to Old Testament quote and Old Testament concept. And it's, it's a good one, right? Because in short, as you probably know, the idea here from God to Israel in the Old Testament is that this is how they were supposed to make sure they enacted justice, right? Justice. And how were they to do so? Well, in making sure that a crime deserved equal punishment. An eye for an eye and no more than that. And so that makes sense. And to be clear, justice like that is a very good thing. Our God is a God of justice. And therefore, just so we all know, when Jesus is about to say to us, but I say to you, he's not disagreeing with the reality of justice. Because Jesus himself is still the second member in the trinity of our God of justice. And elsewhere, Jesus certainly upholds the importance of justice. And so Jesus is not against just and right justice. Rather, instead, Jesus is about to address us as followers, and he's basically going to say, yes, that's justice, but even more so, here's what you, my followers, should aim for. He's going to take mere justice, and he's going to say, yet for you, my followers, you're to take it to the next level. More than focusing on mere justice, my people are people who show and act in mercy when wronged which mercy is not the opposite of justice, but it is more than just justice. Right, And you'll see what I mean, because now let's continue on. So that's the Old Testament quote, which makes Jesus say this. So now look at all of verses 39 through 42. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you for it and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So in what Jesus says here, you can see he makes one main statement and then he explains it with four examples. And you can see that because his main statement is in response to the eye for an eye idea, it's, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's his main statement. And on that notice, Jesus is careful. He doesn't say, do not resist evil. Because we we are to, in a sense, avoid and resist evil. But instead, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Meaning, in the context of justice and being genuinely wronged, he's saying, toward the person doing that to you, don't have the attitude of resisting them, being against them. Which I'm sure makes us all wonder about many things in a lot of situations. Because we may think, "Well, what does that even mean? And the good news for us is that Jesus then goes on and gives four examples in the rest of verses 39 through 42 about what he means. And so now let's just look at those one by one. And example number one is in the rest of verse 39. And just look there as a reminder. Jesus says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So that's obviously now a very famous line by Jesus. But, but what does he mean? Well, to begin, notice the slap is on the right cheek. And that matters because that then means you were slapped across the face with the backside, most likely, of someone's right hand. And that matters because back then, that kind of slap was considered in Jewish circles a big insult. An insult. And so, in short, that means that Jesus here is talking about truly being insulted. And yet, how does he tell us to respond? We'll turn the other cheek. Meaning, if someone insults you, it's wrong. Yes, it's not right or fair. Absolutely. But Jesus is calling us, his people, to not give an insult back in justice. An insult for an insult, but instead, to willingly receive those insults which then leads to example number two for this look again at verse 40 jesus continues and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well so this one would have made immediately a lot more sense to them back then than i think it does at first to you and me because to understand this first we need to know that your tunic which is what they're suing you for here was basically the clothes underneath your cloak But your cloak was the more important outer clothing. And then second, we also need to know that in the Old Testament, the outer clothing cloak was very protected. It was basically stated by God a few times that in the the Old Testament that you have a right to your outer cloak. And if you're tracking, that makes sense. Because it's one thing to not have undergarments, but it's another thing to have no outer clothes. Because right? basically everyone needs outer clothes and so in the Old Testament again a cloak was basically your right something that someone couldn't take from you and Therefore with that understood now look again at what Jesus amazingly says here He says if someone sues you for your tunic your underclothes which You don't need as much per se yet if someone does that Jesus says then even then you can even willingly give up your right To a cloak as well. There was one commentator I read this week. Explained it. He said Jesus is teaching his disciples. That they quote will gladly part. With what they may legally keep. In other words yes. It may be your right to keep it. Like eye for an eye justice. But in mercy. For love's sake. You may give up your right. Which then leads to example number three. So now look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile. Go with him two miles. So now this is an example back then from a government and military oversight context because in short back then it was a law that a Roman soldier could ask any normal civilian to help them carry their military equipment up to one Roman mile and they could force the civilian to do it which is why Jesus uses that verb if anyone forces you. And so in short, Jesus says, if that happens and they force you to do that, go above and beyond and go two miles. And now for us, at first, we may hear that as just Jesus saying, be extra kind. And this one has even become an idiom in English, kind of just meaning just that. Go the extra mile. But what Jesus says here actually means way more than that. And I didn't know this until this week studying this, but it is fascinating because remember, Back then, what was going on back then is that Jesus was primarily talking to a Jewish audience in Palestine where they were governed by the Romans and they so wanted to not be under Roman rule and they thought that Roman government rule was just wrong and therefore if you're tracking for them the reality That a Roman soldier could force them to carry their military equipment was something that these Jews just thought was flat out ridiculous and wrong and unjust. And yet Jesus says clearly in that government oversight example and context that that attitude is not to be the way of his followers. Instead, he says to them back then, and this certainly has a lot of applications for us today, he says to them, even if a Roman soldier forces you to go one mile, humble yourself and willingly go two miles. Which finally leads to the last example, number four, and this is in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So now this is clearly in the context of someone begging and asking to borrow something from you, and particularly money or possessions. And out of all of them, this is the most vague example. And to be clear, notice, Jesus doesn't say that you are to give them whatever necessarily they ask for. And this has been the classic and I think correct Christian interpretation on this. Or Augustine famously said in the 300s AD, he wrote how this verse says, quote, give to everyone who asks, not give everything to him that asks. And that's significant because in the New Testament from here on out, it's not that Christians always give exactly what people ask for, nor does God give us exactly everything we ask for. And yet, Jesus still does say that we are not to resist the one who begs and asks to borrow. In a sense, we are always to give to them. And that's why, as a quick side note, it does take a lot of wisdom and how to apply this. It takes wisdom to know what exactly to give or lend out. But overall, church, what we can definitively say is that if your and my approach to someone who is asking us for something is mainly resisting them, especially because we just subtly think that it's not fair or just or right to give them something, then we can know that we're not applying what Jesus says here. Because again, his point is if someone is impinging on your right or time or stuff here, yes, it doesn't mean that you always give them exactly what they're asking for, but instead of feeling, no, it's my right to have my time and my stuff, our disposition towards them is to be this merciful giving. So sounds a lot, but that's this paragraph from Jesus here. That's how Jesus fulfills the good and fair and right Old Testament teaching about mere justice. Which brings all of us then, with all that said, to now just try to slow down and apply that a little bit to ourselves. And the thing is, there's millions of ways that we could apply this. And we just saw Jesus give four examples, primarily to their context back then. But we may wonder, but what about us? And, And in answer to that, I do think that overall, instead of me just trying to list some random applications that may apply to you personally or not, I do think that the best way for us to apply this is for all of us to really make sure we grasp Jesus' overall point here and then to let the Spirit guide you to wherever you know this applies. (laughs) Because again, Jesus' overall point here is that there's so many ways and times we are mistreated. Or even more generally, there's so many ways and times, church, that we could rightly insist on what's fair and just and what we deserve. Meaning there's a ton of ways that we encounter these situations every week and sometimes every day. But the application is in those mistreatments. What what Jesus is calling us to is to have a disposition that is radically focused on mercy rather than on mere justice. We're to have an attitude of even giving up, getting what we think is fair or just or what we deserve all for the sake of others, for the sake of love. That, that, that's clearly Jesus' point. And again, this really is so difficult. Which again is why this is so radical. But overall, this means, just to make it crystal clear, it means that maybe what we should each do in our heads right now is, is we should think about situations and times where we feel the sense of injustice or it's not fair or what I deserve. And, and I encourage you right now, Think about the many ways you feel that. Think about situations or you might feel that about or people you might feel that about or things going on in our culture you might feel that about. And then the application we must make is to take those things and those times and think, you know what? My response to people treating me or even people treating God like that is not mainly or merely to be just all about justice. Instead, even more so, Jesus says, my response in my actions and in my heart is to be mercy. (laughs) And why? Well, because Jesus is calling us to this church, but even bigger, think about it. Brothers and sisters, the reason why we do this is because being merciful like that really is being like our God. Being like our God. Because think about it. If the living God only mainly held to justice And what people deserve. Mere justice. Which all of us in this room all the time just feel is so good and right and fair. If that was mainly the living God, then guess what? Then then, then none of us would be here right now. The gospel would never have happened and we would not know Jesus. And so instead, we should all realize that the ultimate storyline of the universe is about God himself being genuinely treated unfairly. About him facing such injustice. About him being mistreated and wronged by those he made and loves. And yet he decides to come. He chooses to suffer what he never deserved. He dies for us. He treats us mercifully. That's beautiful. And that is ultimate reality. And therefore, for us, Jesus' point is by his spirit, we are to do the same when we're wronged just like our God of mercy. That's our first section, church. And that's beautiful, but it is difficult. And yet, Jesus doesn't even stop there. Instead, he then concludes all of his but I say to you statements in Matthew chapter 5, in this passage, finally, about loving our enemies. And this is similar to what we just read, but if what we just read was more about feeling and treating others with mercy instead of mere justice... Now this paragraph is going to be about not feeling hate, nor feeling neutral, but genuinely loving from the heart those who are actively against us. And for this, we're going to be in verses 43 through 47, as we are actually cover verse 48 in detail in our conclusion. So verses 43 through 47. And for this, as usual, we'll just start with Jesus' quote to open the paragraph. So look down at your Bibles, verse 43. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So on that quote, half of it is from the Old Testament. That command, you shall love your neighbor. But then the other half is totally not in the Old Testament. The command and hate your enemy. And now scholars debate where exactly that second half originated from. But it is clear either subtly or explicitly, that was an idea they had back then. And honestly, even for us as Christians... I do think that we can all subtly think that way as well. Because hating our enemies may sound like something everyone in this room would say, no, there's no way I'd think that. But don't we all sometimes think that because this person did this, or, or because those people do that, or act like that, and often because they really do do so in God belittling and sinful and hurtful ways? Because of all of that, just think about it. Don't we sometimes subtly think, therefore we kind of do have a right to dislike them? I mean, just think about it. I I think we all feel that way sometimes about others way more than we'd like to admit. Hating our enemies. Anyway, so that's the quote which leads Jesus to respond like this. And for this, we'll first just read only verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So that's Jesus' main response. And simply but powerfully, it's, but I say to you, number one, love your enemies. Which, let's be clear, is a heart word. Love is not mainly an action word in the Bible. Instead, the word love is, in the Bible, a heart emotion word. And so number one, love your enemies. And then Jesus adds, number two, and pray for those who persecute you. And so now he brings in those people, not only not on my side and enemies, but people actively seeking to persecute me. Pray for them. And as a very quick side note, if you are reading the King James Version out there, you will notice here that the King James in verse 44 adds a few more lines. I just want to address this that the ESV does not have. And the reason for this is because long story short, ever since the King James was translated 500 years ago in 1611, we have since excavated and dug up much, much older manuscripts of the New Testament. And the oldest, more reliable manuscripts don't include those extra lines that you'll see in your King James version. But anyway, so so those are the two commands. Love and pray. And those two commands are profound in how they relate because imagine if you really did those things concerning your enemies. For example, if you actually frequently prayed for them, what would happen? Well, you'd love them more and and vice versa, right? If you really love someone like you love others, you'd pray for them. Which leads though, in the bulk of this paragraph, to Jesus explaining more why we should love and pray for our enemies. And he does this in verses 45 through 47. And in these verses, Jesus is basically going to give us two overall reasons why we should love our enemies. So two overall reasons. We'll take them one at a time. And so why should we love our enemies? We're now continuing on the first reason, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on just and on the unjust. So breaking that down, what's the first reason here, church, to love our enemies? Well, it's because our Father in heaven is like this. And we see that because after telling us to love and pray, Jesus adds, quote, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And now on that, to be clear, that doesn't mean... That we have to love or be good enough to be saved. And we know that first because that's just the gospel. But then all over the Bible is not that we have to do that good enough to be saved. But also we know that because Jesus says that God the Father here is already your Father. You can see that. So we're already saved in God's family. But then what does so that you may be sons of your Father mean? Well, in short, back then, the phrase son of didn't only mean physical descendant of, but it also meant resemble or to look like your parent. And therefore, Jesus saying, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, his saying is him saying, love your enemies so that you may resemble your father in heaven. And that's then why Jesus adds that line, quote, for because he, our father in heaven, what does he do? He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Because that's who our father is. And, and church, when we think about it, that one line is really profound in showing us what the living God really is like. And we could spend a whole message on that verse. And just so you know, this verse is rightly a famous verse that theologians have proved for thousands of years to to show what they describe as common grace. Common grace. And all that means is that when we all think of God, what we should know is that God is someone who, yes, does uniquely love his people and treats his people with such grace in Jesus and the gospel, but also God treats the whole world In a gracious way as well to a degree. And just one example of that is his son that rises and the rain he provides for all people. And what Jesus is saying that is that that's just one way to prove that our God is really like what Jesus is talking about. Meaning that God loves his enemies. (laughs) And now more could be said on that. But that's in the first reason why we brothers and sisters should really love our enemies. Because God our father truly does. He does, and we're his children. Or to say it in maybe slightly a different way, because of what Jesus says, I hope we all know that we can confidently say that the God who created this universe, our Father who redeemed us, when he thinks of his creation, which is honestly full of sin, and people hating him, and essentially spitting in his face, when God encounters all of that, He genuinely loves those doing that to him. It's amazing. And now, that does not mean that everyone is saved. Everyone isn't. We all need Jesus to be reconciled to God. But still, God, our Father, loves his enemies. And so we should strive to be like that as well. Stanley says, second reason we should love our enemies. And for this, we'll now read verses 46 and 47. So Jesus continues. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So so we can call this reason to love our enemies as an appeal from Jesus to reward and to our purpose. Reward and to our purpose. And all I mean by that is first, just look again at his first sentence, verse 46. Because to further prove that we should love our enemies, Jesus asks a question now. And what's the question he asks? Well, he brings up in the question this idea of reward. He says, for if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? And that's then further expanded on those next three quick questions, which I think show us an appeal to purpose to our purpose because then Jesus asks, still in verse 46 do not even the tax collectors do the same meaning even those who you could consider morally corrupt do that and then he adds and if you greet only your brothers what are you doing more than others in other words again you Christian are made to do more than that and then finally Jesus asks, do not even the Gentiles meaning the nations that don't know God do not even they do the same And taking all those questions together, you can see Jesus then is saying, not only should we love our enemies to resemble God our Father, that's true. But church, we should love our enemies because there's reward in it and because it's what we were meant to do as followers of Jesus. And so all that said, that's what Jesus teaches here in this paragraph. And again, we'll cover verse 48 in a minute. But that then brings us now once again to simply try to perhaps apply all of this. Right, and especially here, we want to do this because all of us as Christians, I bet, say we love people. <laughs> and I'd say probably most of us in this room would try to say that we genuinely love our enemies. And so we all agree we want this or we should do this, but the question we really have to ask is, but how do we actually do it? <laughs> right? I mean, Or better said, how do we genuinely In our hearts, the hearts that only God sees and we see to some degree, how do we truly love our enemies more? And in answer to that, above all, it needs to be said that we do, church, need the supernatural power of Jesus himself by his spirit in order to do that. And that's true. So we need to know, we need to rely on him. And yet still, at the same time, in order for us to all try to put this more into practice, I do think we can look at Jesus' logic here, if you will, in this paragraph to help us sort of form a game plan for how we might now go from here and start to love our enemies more. And and use this if it helps. But for me, again, just looking at Jesus' logic and what he says here, as I studied this this week, I came to see that there might be a sort of way here that we can put all this into practice. And so again, to apply this, here's just a three-step game plan we can each enter into To actually love our enemies more. A three-step game plan. First, number one, is to actually from here on out, from this morning, start to pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And we start there, well, because that's the first thing that Jesus mentions right away after talking about loving our enemies. But then also, we start here because praying for these people will make us identify them in our minds, and it'll help us perhaps start to feel love for them. And so that's the first step we should all do. Pray for your enemies. Which then leads to step number two. And that's number two. As you're praying about them or just thinking about them, then also take the time to realize that God truly does love them. God really loves them. And that's a profound thought because God is real. He exists. And in a sense, Jesus invites us here into the heart of God. And what do we see? Well, we see that God towards his real enemies. Guess what? He loves them right now. And that means God really loves whoever our enemies are as well. And so that's step number two, because that'll help us feel, well, if God, who who sees everything going on way more than even I do, if he loves them, then I should as well. Which then leads to step number three in this three-step game plan. And that's then number three from that prayer and from that knowledge of God's love. It's to then go and actually seek to love whoever we're thinking of. Right? In our lives. And I think that will help us as well because we might just pray for them and know God's love them. But we might not want to do anything about it. But Jesus says no. No. Go and actually do something about them. Love them for their good and for your good and because it is your purpose as a Christian. And so all that said, church, let's just make it our aim to do this more. Let's heed Jesus' call to once again not just tolerate or be neutral toward or say we love those against us, but church, let's actually seek to love our enemies. So that's most of this passage, which brings us finally now to close with verse 48. Verse 48. And and I just ask you, don't check out yet because this is a huge verse, a huge verse. And really, this is Jesus' concluding verse, not only to our final paragraph here, but a lot of people studying the Bible think that this is Jesus' conclusion to all of his but I say to you statements he's made in Matthew chapter 5. And I actually agree with that. And so here is Jesus' conclusion. To his teachings on anger and lust and divorce and promises and retaliation and loving our enemies. Jesus says this, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) So this is a famous verse. But I do think that it can easily be quoted without really understanding what's going on here. Because first, what we need to know is that this word perfect here isn't mainly Just about ethically making no mistakes. Now it is true that making no mistakes and not sinning is included in this word. But in Greek especially, this word Jesus uses here is more full than that. Because rather than just meaning making no mistakes or no sins, I want you to know this word perfect more specifically means complete. And it's actually the semi-famous Greek philosophical word teleos. Which literally means reached its final goal or end or again, complete. And that matters because that then means in this final verse here, our Jesus is calling us, he says to us, we must be complete people, perfect people like our heavenly father is. And now what does that mean? Well, in context, above all, it means think about it, that we must be and seek to be the people God has made us to be. Not just avoiding negative things like anger and lust, but also in living in extremely positive things like making peace and loving our enemies. That's completeness. That's perfection. And on that, Jesus says you must be or be perfect. Well, because brothers and sisters, that's true. We we, Jesus' people, we must be complete like that church. Our end goal in Jesus' kingdom is nothing less than that. And now hear me out. That doesn't mean that we aren't in Jesus' kingdom and saved unless we're already perfect. Because we know, again, that's not the gospel. And because here, again, God once again has already called your heavenly father. You can see that. And so, hear me out. You do not need to be perfect to be saved or to know Jesus or have peace with God. Nor does this verse mean that we can't attain perfection in this life. Because we can't. And yet, all that said, still, what Jesus says here is legitimate, brothers and sisters. It is true. He talks about avoiding sin and being such loving people, and he says, you must be like that. You people I love in my kingdom, you must be like this. Perfection is the only set goal. Completeness is the only aim. And perfection and completeness, Jesus is saying, since this is what we must be then this also means that that's where we're each going. Which finally, and just give me a couple more minutes on all this and we will be done. But finally, that then means that actually when we therefore think about this final command here from Jesus in chapter 5 about being perfect, if you're tracking it all, it means that for us in Jesus' kingdom, this you must be perfect is actually a very encouraging thing. It's not a downer. But it's actually an extremely uplifting command. And just stick with me. Because I know that may sound really strange to you. You may wonder, how can you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? How can that be uplifting? But think of it this way. Yes, again, it is true. That if we read this command wrongly as you must be perfect to be loved or to be saved or to have peace. Then yes, it would be incredibly discouraging. Because we won't be perfect in this life. And that's why our peace and security and salvation is in Jesus alone. Trusting in him, not in us. And so yes, if we read this wrong, without the gospel, it's very discouraging. But brothers and sisters, if we read this correctly, with the gospel in mind, and we see this perfection as the goal, yes, and as the aim, always, absolutely. And also though, as where we're going as who Jesus is making us to be and it's incredibly uplifting and encouraging because in short that's what's going on here Jesus is pointing us to who we must be in his kingdom and what he's making us eventually to look like and what is that? Perfection completeness and what does that look like? Well it looks like Matthew chapter 5 about avoiding lust and anger and making peace and keeping our promises and loving our enemies but even still what does that really look like? well amazingly think about it do you know who actually finally exemplified everything that we're talking about? Do you know who was and is the perfect and most complete human being who ever lived? Jesus himself. Right? And this is, this is where it does get beautiful because think about it. Who, for example, above all, was actually wrongly slapped on the cheek and yet didn't retaliate? Well, just so you know, in the same book of Matthew, coming up in chapter 26, Jesus in his trial is going to be slapped by the high priest on the cheek. The same exact verb is used, and he doesn't retaliate, even though he was totally innocent. Or who, or who, above all, was was wronged, and he wasn't sinfully angry when wronged, though, but he sought to make peace. Right? Who never lusted? Who kept all of his promises? Who gave himself freely, or finally? Who, above all, loved his enemies perfectly and even literally prayed for those who persecuted him? Well, again, think of Jesus on the cross, literally pierced through and suffocating, suffering unjustly. It was wrong. And yet he loved and prayed for those who put them in there. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so the point is, brothers and sisters, that is not only our God, but that is true humanity. (laughs) That's the complete human. And for us, we must aim to be more like him. We strive for such completeness here and now in our daily lives. We seek to follow Jesus and shine our light the best we can. But ultimately, such completeness won't come in this life. But it will come. It must come in the next. And then, as Jesus is about to say in Matthew 13, quote, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. In other words, we shine the best we can now, but one day, church, we each will shine like the sun. We will be that radiant. We won't be Jesus or God, but in Jesus' kingdom, we will finally be who we were meant to be. Perfect. Perfect. Complete. And so, all that said, until then, church, the point is, let's strive to be like that more and more now. Let's follow Jesus in all these topics here from Matthew chapter 5. And why? Well, because he has saved us by grace in the gospel. Because this is what he's calling us to. Because this is like our God. It's who we were made to be. And it's what we'll be like brilliantly forever. And so, for now, let's do it. Be merciful to those who mistreat us and loving our enemies. (laughs)